You guys hear me in the back okay? Okay, excellent. So today is our third week of Advent, unless I'm counting wrong. Um, and as we do each week, we'll be looking at a different effect of the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This week specifically, we'll be focusing on joy. And I, as I was thinking about how I wanted to present this morning, I was toying with the idea of doing a little mini survey at the beginning of this. I'd ask you questions about your experiences with joy. You'd you know, raise your hand to, to answer, or just by show of hands to answer. I'd ask questions about how often you thought about joy, how often you experienced joy, how often joy uh, was it, uh, something you, 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 you talked about in your, in your, with your friends and, and family. And I decided not to do that because I didn't want to embarrass anyone, because I think if we really thought about it, if we really spent some time thinking about it, we'd probably have to admit to ourselves that joy is not something that we regularly focus on. It's not something that we daily experience. It's not something that is really on our hearts and minds a whole lot. It's not something that we talk about with our family and friends much. It's not something that really seems to be a focus and a priority in our lives. And that's completely different than how the New Testament talks about joy. Joy is a focus. Joy is an emphasis in the New Testament. So there's this disconnect that often I think happens in many, many, many believers' lives where we are at odds with how the Bible talks about the priority of joy in our lives versus how we actually experience it. And you may be listening to this, and you may be thinking I'm totally crazy, that you are a joyous person, you come from a long line of joyous people, your spouse is joyous, that's excellent. I'm thrilled for you, but in my experience, generally speaking, you are probably the exception rather than the rule. For most believers, joy is not something that's on our hearts and minds, it's not something we talk a lot about, and it's not something that we regularly commonly experience. And it's something I thought about, sorry, this seems really echoey. Is it feeling echoey to you guys? No? You okay? It is echoey to you guys? Should I just go to the, no? Okay. Apologies for the next 35 minutes then. Um, but I've thought a lot about over the years why that is the case. And I think there are a number of really simple, practical reasons for it. For example, um, we are all Americans in this room, generally speaking, and joy is not really a cultural construct for us. We don't talk about joy in our culture at all. Um, it's really not a thing. We don't, we don't really let it creep into our vocabulary. If you were watching a secular movie or a TV show or reading a book and something fantastic happens to someone, they will describe their feelings in terms of happiness. They'll use superlatives, I'm so happy, I can't tell you how happy I am, this is amazing but they won't use the word joy. In fact, if you're, if you're watching something and the word joy comes up, nine times out of 10, you're watching a Christmas movie. The word joy tends to be relegated to Christmas time in our culture. We don't really have a, a, a common use for that word. Sometimes it can be a sin issue. Um, and I don't mean you know big, unrepentant sin. Uh, certainly, if you are living in unrepentant sin, joy is not going to characterize your life. But I'm talking more about the subtle sort of heart creep that can happen where we're focused more on this world than the next. One of the interesting things I think about joy is apart from Jesus Christ in this world, joy is circumstantial. You feel joy when something great happens or you avoid something terrible, but other than that, not so much. You, know, you pop the question and she says yes. You get the dream job, you get the test results back and the cancer's gone. You feel joy. Otherwise, you don't. And that's generally joy apart from Jesus Christ. So 
sometimes our hearts can get away from us, and that's why joy ends up not being a priority in our lives. Also, though, too, suffering. It can feel like joy is entirely out of reach when you're going through a trial, when you're suffering. And there are many in the body, I think, right now who are going through a lot. You know, if you're on CCB and you're paying attention to the prayer requests, you'll see a number of those needs. But I promise you, for every single one of those, there are 12 that are left unsaid. There are a lot in our body now who are suffering. There are people who are struggling with fracturing relationships, with crushing health issues, with finances, both in general and caused by the shutdowns. We have people who are living in fear and anxiety. We have people who are suffering crushing loneliness and isolation. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that you know, politics and COVID and masks and all that aren't also opening up rifts in the body that are making some of those things worse. It would not surprise me if many of our congregation felt that joy is simply out of reach right now. And we have this remarkable tendency, too, to suffer in isolation, don't we? You know, and, and when you do that, you're not just suffering through whatever painful providence, but you're suffering through that and the feeling of be, being alone in it. So if that's you this morning, before we really launch into the sermon proper, if that's you this morning, I do want to just emphasize that everything we say here still applies to you, that you can have joy in the middle of pain and suffering in this life. Joy is the birthright of believers. We should talk about it. We should want it. We should fight for it. We serve a God who wants us to be characterized by joy, a joy he secured 2,000 years ago when our Savior was born in Bethlehem. So in the time we have this morning, my goal is to labor for your joy. I don't want to have this sermon be something where I give you a definition of joy and five things that, jo- you know, five ways to get joy and you walk out of here with an action plan. I would love for everyone to feel joy, to experience it, to get up off these seats or if you're watching on the live stream at home, off the couch or bed, and to experience joy. So I'm going to try to do that this morning. There are four things, a four-point outline that I have. First and foremost, I'm going to prove the point I just made that joy really is everywhere in the scriptures, that it is supposed to be something that we care about, prioritize, focus on. And then to get everybody on the same page, we will actually define what joy is, just for alignment purposes. But then we're going to look at a number of texts in an attempt to help everyone see just why it is that joy is our birthright. And then finally, we will land in Luke 2 and tie everything together. So this is either going to go really well or it's going to be a complete train wreck, one of the two. Um, So to that end, let's pray together that it's not the latter. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Veritas Church. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that this sermon would open our eyes to the glory of your grace to us in him, that it would open our eyes to your magnificent, endless, secured love for us, and that all of us, Lord, would walk out of here with hearts filled with joy. May our Lord and Savior be glorified in this, in his name, amen. I love the little amen. (laughs) All right, so I'm going to show you that I'm not crazy, that joy really is everywhere in the scriptures. Uh, It really is amazing how much joy is everywhere once you start to see it. Um, I should warn you, too, if you're a fastidious note taker, 
um, and you want to get down every sermon reference, this sermon is probably not going to spark a lot of joy for you. I'm going to throw out like 22 different texts throughout the time. Um, so if you need, you know, if you need the references, see me afterwards and I can email you the manuscript. But uh, uh, we're, we're going to go through a number here. Um, joy is first and foremost commanded. It's commanded twice, technically in two different books, Philippians 4, 4, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Both contain the command to rejoice always. Joy is supposed to be something. It is expected to be regular in our lives. Paul prayed for the joy of believers. Uh, Romans 15, 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. James counsels believers to react to trials with joy. James 1, 2, Count it all joy, my brothers. View it as joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Paul describes his ministry in terms of joy, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. John also mentions laboring for joy, uh, 2 John 1, 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. In Galatians 5.22, Paul describes joy as a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is therefore an outgrowth of our faith. It's a, it's a necessary consequence of our faith. The Bible talks about joy being intrinsically beneficial to us. In Proverbs 17.22, it says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. If you read the Psalms, you'll see that joy is absolutely bound up in our worship. Two, um, two texts at random. Uh, Psalm 5.11 but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt you. Psalm 71, 23. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also which you have redeemed. And then my personal favorite is Romans 14, 17. There Paul describes the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is fundamentally about three things. He could have picked any three nouns. And he picked righteousness, peace, and joy. The kingdom of God is fundamentally about joy. Joy is everywhere in the Bible. It is not something peripheral, and joy should characterize our lives. We get to have joy characterize our lives. Now, that's the case. We should probably define it, make sure we're all on the same page. Um, and I think because joy and happiness are so intrinsically related, they really are bound up together, that it's, it's kind of helpful to, to define the two in tandem and talk about some differences. So first and foremost, happiness, to be happy. To be happy is to be in good spirits. Uh, it's the absence of bad feelings. It's the presence of good. You feel content. You are positive. You laugh easier. Good things appear better, and bad things appear less bad. Joy is kind of like happiness on steroids. It's that, it's that inner elation, that inner delight, that inner surge of positive, happy emotion at something good that has happened or at the avoidance of something bad that's happened. But joy isn't just a, a, a stronger version or a different form of happiness. There's some important differences too. So first and foremost, joy springs from something. You can wake up and feel happy for no reason you will almost never wake up and feel joyous for no reason. You, you, something has to cause it. In, in Luke 10, 20, 
Jesus has sent the disciples out. Uh, they've come back and they're reporting that demons were subject to them. And their reaction to that was joy. They were joyous over what was happening to them. Psalm 27, 6, the psalmist says that God will deliver him from his enemies. And as a result, he will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. He says, I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So joy springs forth from something. Also, joy isn't a settled state. Joy is not something that settles into your soul and stays there for six months. It, it needs to be fueled to continue. You need something to prompt joy, and you need something to sustain joy. Happiness can linger. Uh, joy absolutely has a scale. It is not simply an overwhelming feeling that you get. Uh, there's more joy, there's less joy, and it can be fairly subtle. Uh, in Psalm 4-7, the psalmist says that God has put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. He's got more joy than when folks living for this world have their great harvest or get rich. John says something, or Jesus says something similar in John 16, 24, when he says that until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Joy is not all or nothing. It, can have it has degrees and you can have more and you can have less. The joy is often expressed. Happiness, not so much so. You can be happy. Um, maybe you smile more easily. Maybe you laugh a little more easily. But you can be happy and be quiet about it. Generally speaking, joy wants to be expressed. doesn't matter what that expression is. There's numerous examples of expressions of joy in the scriptures. Um, you can overflow into prayer. You can sing. In Psalm 32, 11, the psalmist says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. David danced when the ark was returned in 1 Samuel. The expression of joy isn't really what's important, but it is a helpful distinction, I think, to see that uh, joy and happiness have this difference where joy is often something that's expressed. So again, joy is this inner elation, this inner delight, this inner surge of positive, happy emotion at something good that has happened or something bad that's been avoided. It differs from joy in that it needs to be prompted, it needs to be sustained. It has definitely a scale, and you typically want to express yourself when you're experiencing joy. So that's what joy is. As we talk about joy in the rest of the sermon, hopefully we're all on the same page in terms of that definition. But I should note that the believer's joy is not rooted in circumstances. It's not rooted in our popularity, relationships, skills, achievements. It is entirely bound up in the gospel. It isn't wrong to rejoice when something great happens. Please feel free. There is nothing wrong with that. But the joy that lasts, the joy that the kingdom is fundamentally about, and the joy that can sustain you in the trials of life when bad things happen, that joy is ultimately rooted in our understanding the fullness of our salvation. That's where we're going to go this morning. Um, if our joy is ultimately rooted in the fullness of our salvation, then to help us see just how great that salvation is, we're going to spend some time looking at the heart of it, namely God's love for us, how he feels about us. But since this is a sermon on joy, I want to do that by looking at God's own joy over his people. If that doesn't make sense, I promise it will. Just bear with me. Um, we're going to look at four texts. Uh, the first one is Matthew 25, 21. Matthew 25, 21. Feel free to turn there if you like. Um, I'm going to read all the verses that I mentioned. 
So Matthew 25, 21 is the middle of a parable. It's part of the parable of the talents. The parable is describing what happens when Jesus returns at his second coming. And the text, the master here, represents Jesus as talking to his faithful servant upon his return. The servant has proven to be particularly faithful, and the master is praising him. But listen to how that praise is expressed, how that reward is expressed in verse 21. It says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Repeat that last sentence again. Enter into the joy of your master. It is the master, Jesus in this case, who is filled with joy. And he invites his servant to participate in that, to step into it. When Jesus returns, he will be filled with delight to see his brothers and sisters having finished their races faithfully. His joy will be over them. But this isn't just the joy of seeing his brothers and sisters walking faithfully in the truth. It's also the joy of now getting to be in fellowship with them for the rest of time. He doesn't just rejoice over what he did, he's rejoicing over them. So when Jesus says to us, enter into the joy of your master, what he's really saying is, come enjoy the joy that I have over you. Have you ever experienced that before? Ever had a situation where someone that you love deeply, who loves you deeply, hasn't seen you in a long time, has been longing to see you, and then you get to go be with that person, you get to experience their happiness and their joy over you, it makes you want to rejoice too. It makes you supremely happy. I think the perfect picture of this is soldiers coming back from deployment, right? I think we all can, you know what that, that picture looks like? You've got, you know, spouse and maybe parents and kids and friends lined up at an airport, seeing people get off the plane, seeing people in fatigues getting off the plane, looking for the face of their particular loved one. And then when they see them, the joy that they feel of, of knowing that they're home safe, they get to talk to them again, they get to see them again, they get to hug them again, that joy that they feel. And we, I think we've all seen that picture at some point in time in some video somewhere. Think about how that feels for the soldier. Really think about how that feels for the soldier. Can you, can you imagine it if you haven't experienced it yourself? I hope so, because that's our future. Except it's not moms and dads and spouses and kids and friends who are waiting for us, but it's our God himself who is waiting to rejoice over us when he comes back. We see another picture of this exact thing in Zephaniah 3.17. Zephaniah 3.17. Yes, there is a Zephaniah. Uh, now, in that, in that passage, um, it's also generally looking forward to the second coming. Um, obviously, it's in, a, it's in a prophetic form, though. And, and that verse reads, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So in this passage, the God who loves us is rejoicing. The creator of the universe is going to exult, and that word literally means rejoice, over us with singing. The all-powerful, eternal God who needs nothing, who is complete, will be singing with joy over you. And he isn't, so he's not just like smiling gladly. He's not aloof and going, yeah, great, cool, they're here. He, he, is, he is erupting in joyous song. 
I'm going to picture here, God is not like, you know, he's not a shy wallflower in the back of service, mouthing, lips, uh, words, mouthing the words of the song. He's the guy up front singing so loudly, he's annoying the worship leaders. That's who God is in this prophecy. He is singing loudly over you. This is a powerful joy that he lets out in song because he so deeply loves his children and now gets to be with them holy and redeemed forever. There's another picture of this in another parable in, in Luke 15. It's the parable of the lost coin. Uh, Luke 15, verses 8 through 10. There we read, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So again, verse 10, there is joy before the angels of God. That is not meant to point to the angels' joy. Yes, the angels are rejoicing, but that's really not the point. The woman in the story represents God. It is God who is seeking out the lost. God is the one calling the friends and neighbors together. Those would be the angels. And God is the primary one rejoicing. Why? Because he loves his sheep. Because he found them. He found one. He found you. So great is his joy over his beloved elect that he turns his joy into a community event. He is bringing everybody into his joy. And that's not a joy that's going to happen in some distant future. It's happening right now, every single time someone comes to saving faith. Now, it's also the same love, the same joy that motivated Jesus to endure the single most difficult event in his ministry, his crucifixion. Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured the cross in pursuit of joy. He looked forward to the day when his redeemed brothers and sisters, fallen humanity remade in his perfect image and cleansed from every sin and imperfection, would be with him. He looked forward to that, and Hebrews said it fueled his death on our behalf. It's kind of like, you know, it's, it's like an athlete who imagines what it would be like to stand on that podium and get the gold medal, or to get the Super Bowl ring, or Stanley Cup and then lives the rest of his life for that moment. Eating, sleeping, relationships aimed at that moment. That's the picture here in Hebrews 2, or Hebrews 12, verse 2. Except Jesus endured more than any of us can imagine, and the most horrific death imaginable for the thought of us, motivated by the thought of us. I mean, just pause and really think about this for a second. You are so loved by God. You are so much his delight, his treasure. He cherishes you so much that he rejoices at the thought of your salvation and eternal fellowship with you. His joy in seeing you saved and restoring the relationship with him that you ought to have always had motivated Jesus to go to the cross and die the most horrific death imaginable. He loves you so much that he rejoices to see you walking faithfully He's coming back for you to remove these bodies of sin and death and to be with you forever. And his love is so great. His pleasure with, over, over, over fellowship with you so vast that he will burst forth in joyous song because of it. 
how can we not have joy ourselves knowing that the God of this universe feels this way about us? How can we not rejoice knowing that he treasures us so? How can we not rejoice knowing that he is sovereignly working every second of our lives together for our good to this end? How can we not rejoice when we know that he treasures us so much that he himself delights to do what is in our best interest at all times without fail? In a very real way, God's joy over us, sprung forth from his love, is the fount of our joy. It's the foundation of our lasting joy in the New Testament. And the best part is there's nothing that can, be ta- there's nothing that can take this away from us. Romans 8, 35 and 39. It's an oldie but a goodie. I'm going to read it. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depths, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is done, it is guaranteed, and joy because of it belongs to us. Which finally brings us to Luke 2. Or, yeah, Luke 2. So Luke 2, 8 to 12, uh, we read it out loud. It's on the front of your bulletins. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this that our joy was secured when our Lord and Savior was born 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. This passage, I think, is fitting to end on because not only is it the month of Advent, but because in this one passage, I think we see the love of God on display and we see a very clear call to joy because of it. So I'm going to read it one more time, and then we'll, we'll walk through it. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were feel, filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. In one real sense, every moment since Adam and Eve fell in the garden was pointing to what's happening here in Luke 2. In Genesis 3.15, amidst cursing Adam and Eve, God gives a promise of redemption. And in one sense, the entirety of the Old Testament is really sort of the unfolding and the clarifying and the expanding upon that promise. Um, in, In Abraham, for example, God takes the promise of Genesis 3.15 and signals his intention for it to be a global salvation, but brought about through one particular family lineage. In Moses, God reveals his perfect and holy standard in the law that no man can touch. He also reveals in the sacrificial system the need for a perfect substitute 
to close the gap that our sin has created between us and God. And in the prophets, God reveals not just a future redemption, but the institution of a new covenant where he would change the hearts of men. But it was all culminating in this moment. Everything was pointing to the beginning of God's magnificent saving work in Jesus Christ. The eternal, infinite, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent Son in an act of indescribable and incredible humility took on flesh and was born to two unremarkable human parents. And the announcement of his birth was not given to the emperor at Rome or to the Sanhedrin or the high priest, but to shepherds in a field, men of no reputation, no power, no wealth, the lower class, and the poor. But what's really remarkable about this passage, I think, is, is verse 12. And I, I, I skipped over this for so many years. But the angel says, this will be a sign to you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The proof is that they will find a baby lying in a manger. So in verse 11, the baby is identified as the Savior, as the Messiah, the Christ. This is a massively important child. This is a massively important birth. And this child is going to be found in a feeding trough, a place where animal slop is placed. And that's the sign. That is the proof that this baby is the Messiah, is that he will be found in that manger. And it's a really odd statement for the angel to make, but I think there's a really profound message there for us. In the incarnation, God has broken into the world in a way that has never happened before, and it was very deliberately in the lowest of circumstances. He could have orchestrated this any way he wanted to. He could have made Mary and Joseph emperor and empress of the world if he wanted to. He could have announced Jesus' birth in the night sky. He could have written it in the stars. He could have done something where every single person of importance in the world was shaken out of their beds and, 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 and knew that the Messiah was here. Jesus could have laid his head in the finest crib ever made by human hands. He could have an angel create a heavenly crib and drop it right there for him. He did none of those things. He orchestrates Jesus' birth in this incredibly humble and lowly way to signal from the very moment that he entered into the world that the Son did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why the manger is the sign. God is showing the world literally from the beginning of Jesus' life that he is here to save us out of his abundant love. And that's why the angel said that he was bringing good news of great joy. In that moment, God had broken into the world to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3, to fulfill the promises made to Abraham, to be that perfect, righteous substitute and sacrifice, and to institute the new covenant. And in that moment, God begins to secure our eternal joy. It's because of this, brothers and sisters, that joy is our birthright as believers. His incredible love for us and the glorious salvation that his love has purchased for us means that no matter what else is happening in our lives or in the world, we can have joy. So in conclusion, I do want to end on two simple exhortations. One to those whose faith is in Christ and one to those who's not. First, to believers, I want to circle back on what I said in my introduction about us tending to, for whatever reason, 
ignoring or downplaying the role of joy in our lives. Our, Our salvation rightly understood, especially when we understand just how sinful, just how rebellious, just how helpless we were in bondage to sin, should bring us regular joy. And that is how we fight for joy. We do what I tried to model in this sermon for you, to bring to mind the greatness of God's loving kindness towards us and everything that flows from it, the greatness of our salvation. That is how we fight for joy. Joy belongs to us. We should never settle for a joyless life. We should never let the gospel take a backseat in our lives such that we lose the wonder of it, the joy of it. We serve a God who wants us to be joyous, and that is joy in and of itself. So preach these things to yourselves throughout this week, the rest of the month. Men, preach these things to yourself first and then to your families. Help them see this message of joy. Help them fight for joy as well. Now second, if you are here today and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, I used you a lot. I said that word a lot. I have to say, unfortunately, not a single thing I said today applies to you then. Not a single thing. But it can. And I'd plead with anyone here or anyone listening who who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ to repent, to put your faith in him. Hopefully you heard how great a savior he is. Please now put your faith in him. Let today be the day that there's rejoicing in heaven over one more sinner who repents. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the glorious salvation that you've given us. We thank you for your endless love and loving kindness to us. We thank you, Lord, that this is true and it is secured and done and greater than anything that we may be experiencing in this life. I pray, Lord, for whatever reason, if joy is not something that we prioritize and focus in our life. I pray, Lord, that you would correct that. I pray if our hearts are set on this world, if there is unrepentant sin, if we can't see joy for the sake of suffering, if we just don't think about it because it's not all around us, I just I pray, Lord, that regardless of the reason, you would open our hearts and minds to the priority of joy, that we would rejoice in your love and in your graciousness to us and that we would encourage our other brothers and sisters in Christ to do the same. And I ask you for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.